Hi, I'm Dee. And I'm Olivia, your substitute teacher today. <laughs> or your stepdad. We're going to be wheeling in a TV to play Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episodes. Oh, sick. Those are the best uh, classes. I know, right? Everyone, if you're listening, stop the podcast. Go put on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Go watch, a, go watch a couple episodes of The Fresh Prince and then come back to us. Yeah, we'll be here. All right, so what did you bring me on to talk about today? Brought you on to talk about a, uh, a subject I had actually been really fascinated with since I found out about it. Hobby Lobby's theft of artifacts from Iraq. Oh, hell yeah, colonialism. <laughs> Extreme colonialism, bizarre colonialism, and uh, church-funded colonialism at that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I don't I feel like I don't get into antiquities enough. It's kind of just sort of not my general area, but everything about the story was so was so fucked up. Yeah. That it was extremely fascinating and actually uh very recently there was a ruling and uh given that you have experience in this area, uh I wanted to hear your your special hot take. Yeah, I actually do have experience in antiquities from a number of different areas. It all has just fucking soaked in blood. Yay! <laughs> yeah, this being no exception. Yeah. Um, all right, so I wrote up some notes. Let's start with the basics. What am Hobby Lobby? The worst. Yeah, yeah they fucking really are. <laughs> <laughs> So the first source that I was using was was Wikipedia. You are going to notice some weird things about this Wikipedia article. Just off the top, I'm going to warn you. <laughs> okay. Uh, so straight from the source, Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc., formerly, formerly Hobby Lobby Creative Centers, is an American retail company. It owns a chain of arts and crafts stores with a volume of over $5 billion in 2018. Disgusting. Yes. Guillotine. Let's take a brief look at their history. In 1972, the founder, David Green, opened the first Hobby Lobby store in northwest Oklahoma City while working part-time as a supervisor at a similar variety store called TG&Y. I don't know if they still exist. I didn't look that up. I, I'm pretty sure they don't. Yeah, I'd never heard of this before. So this is also directly from the wiki. This is where it starts to get weird. <laughs> He quit in 1975 to open a second Hobby Lobby in Oklahoma City in 1975. He opened a third in Tulsa in 1976. Hobby Lobby grew to seven stores by mid-1982. The first store outside of Oklahoma opened in 1984. It gets weirder. Okay. When Green expanded the scope of the business to include furniture and high-end cookware during the early 1980s, it led to losses as the economy slowed. He returned to arts and crafts emphasis, and by late 1992, the chain had grown to 50 locations in seven U.S. states. As of 2020, the chain has more than 900 locations nationwide. Okay. That was yeah. weird. It just switches tenses from active to passive. <laughs> but that's just the Wikipedia page. It's community written. So let's check their official Hobby Lobby approved copywritten history on their website, which actually has like a different tone, much okay. more active. 
David and Barbara Green took out a $600 loan in 1970 to start selling picture frames out of their house. And from there, they built up to their first location, the second location, the third location, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth. From their website, Hobby Lobby offers over 70,000 items featuring home decor, seasonal decor, tableware, floral, art supplies, craft supplies, yarn, fabric, jewelry making, hobbies, and much more. And this does not seem to be an exaggeration. Multiple sources have verified this origin story of them starting out of their living room, basically, and growing to be one of the largest hobby companies in America. Oh, yeah. I mean, back in the 1970s, it was totally possible to do that. That's actually fair. A $600 loan was, like, easy to pay off, but also no joke. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, David Green was the son of a preacher for a church of about 35 people. And this is from the Shitty Christians podcast, which did a short episode on (laughs) Hobby Lobby last year. They're so good. Did you listen to that episode? Uh, I didn't get a chance to listen to that one. No, I I do love their podcast. Yes. (laughs) It's so good. Um... And Hobby Lobby's Wikipedia page mentions that their founding principles are honoring the Lord in all we do by operating the company in a manner consistent with biblical principles. Disgusting. (laughs) I mean, the one good thing that I actually genuinely agree with is that they are open for business every day except Sunday. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a case of the right thing for the wrong reason. Yep. (laughs) But it is a good thing still. Yeah, hell yeah. Keep the store closed. David Green says that it's to allow employees to spend more time for the worship, rest, and family, blah, blah, blah. Their sure. full-time good. hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Fuck it. Get a day. I don't care. Yeah. It's the one not evil thing they've done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and everything else sounds good, but is cloaked in evil. For example, their full-time hourly wage has been $15 since 2014. They announced that on September 14th, 2020, that it would be raised to $17 an hour, effective October 1st, 2020. County17.com reports that they are the highest playing employer in the industry with one of the most generous benefit packages. And this is from a September 2020 article on County17.com. In addition to providing industry-leading pay, the retailer also provides great benefits to eligible employees, including an outstanding medical prescription and dental plan, plus 401k, among others, per release. Ah, you know, I couldn't help but notice eligible employees as a clause. What? I've run into that myself a couple of times. No. (laughs) You're joking. I call it the target effect. (laughs) Yeah, you can get great health care if you get enough hours. You know, the Shitty Christians podcast did this, said the same thing. Oh, really? Yeah, huh. they said that only department members qualify for full-time work and all of the cashiers are part-time. <laughs> yep, there it is. So the majority of Hobby Lobby employees don't actually qualify for the full-time benefits that are in this incredibly lucrative package. Yep. That's yeah. how they get you. <laughs> I know that you saw this in the notes, but I think I'm just going to put this right here. I'm assuming that most of your listeners have worked in retail at some point because we live in a post-capitalist hellscape. Um, David Green doesn't want barcodes on any of his products because he thinks that the act of bar- of like tagging every individual item by hand 
is some kind of fucked up medieval Christian meditative practice. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a philosophy for him. It's bizarre. And it makes oh. me really feel for the employees because that means nothing is inventoriable. No. Oh, man. No, it does not. But I did get a lot of this stuff from a podcast with a title called Shitty Christians. And that sounds editorial. From I've heard from other multiple sources that they actually uh, they do not use skew codes. Oh no, yeah, definitely not the skew codes. But I'm talking oh, okay. about like also like the benefits package and who qualifies. But that's also on Glassdoor.com. Like if you go to Glassdoor.com, it says in some of their exit interview data that cashiers make between nine dollars and eleven dollars an hour, and that's in 2020 money right now. 2021, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's. I mean, I believe that because it's a very common. I'm not going to call it a scam because it's not technically a scam, but oh, a very common like way around getting to have to give your employees benefits. The benefits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I know. I've also had to deal with that, and in smaller businesses, I've had to work at like, like, like s- local chains that have done this. It's disgusting. Oh God, yeah. Um, here's another fun fact about the full-time employee benefits package. It doesn't include contraception or birth control. Well, that would, wouldn't be Christian. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. But Hobby Lobby was the center of a landmark ruling, the Burwell versus Hobby Lobby ruling of 2014, that allows employers to make health decisions for their employees based on ethical or spiritual grounds. Fantastic. Uh, and guess what they did during COVID? Uh, I'm guessing. Oh, uh, hold on, I I have your notes, but I'm not. Li- I'm not. <laughs> oh no, ahead. go go for it, please do by all means. I'm, I want to hear you read this quote. <laughs> they they okay. All right, I'll, I'll take this. I'll take this right from the notes. <laughs> do this. If you guess they stayed open, you're right. <laughs> Business Insider reports that Barbara Green had a vision from God to keep the stores open, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> Last year in March, they reported this from a letter written by her husband. David, I had no idea that this was why, by the way. Yeah, it's because she had a vision from God. What a crazy reason, especially when other businesses were just staying open because they were like, hey, I need money. Yeah. And the government was like, fair. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. the letter from David Green. <clears throat> in her quiet prayer time this past week. The Lord put on Barbara's heart three profound words to remind us that he's in control. Guide, guard, and groom, Green reportedly says in the letter. Like a we horse. Serve a God who will guide us through this storm, who will guard us as we travel to places never seen before, and who, as a result of this experience, will groom us to be better than we could have ever thought possible before now. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> None of that had anything to do with COVID-19. I couldn't no. notice. No, again, I, it's a lot more like straight from a man and his horse than it is the Bible. Yeah. I I there's a, a moment of dread with guard us as we travel to places never seen before. And as someone who hasn't been to a hobby lobby, like that fills me with fear. I yeah I know I don't know what to expect when I walk into a Hobby Lobby I don't think they have them in New York like the state I don't know like honestly they might somewhere upstate oh. yeah probably I mean probably yeah I went I went to the lobby of one and then 
I looked at the letters that were on the doorway and I said, what the fuck? And I walked back out. <laughs> you were like, I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. <laughs> There are there are so many other scandals. There's stuff that like the Shitty Christians podcast didn't cover. I still recommend checking it out. They go a lot more into like how their business model intersects with their faith. And since that is like the base, that's their beat. That's their journalistic beat. I recommend checking that out if you want to like get more into that. Thanks to Mac, Mike and Zach for doing my research for me. Shout out to you boys. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, so as you might have supposed. David Green's understanding of the Bible comes less from his personal reading of the source material than from his social background. And through his- Squarely in the majority of Christians. American white Christians. That's true, yes. American white Christians with an extreme interest in modern American business policy. You know, Jesus's favorite topic. Oh, he loved American business interests. (laughs) But I'm sure if my notes were open source, they'd be edited to emphasize that David Green personally views himself as part of an ancient spiritual tradition and that he values primary sources as a direct connection to his intellectual lineage. And I'm sure there's some neutral, extremely passive way to say this, but that's probably his motivation for buying cuneiform tablets. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, that was about as neutral as I think you can get. Thank you. While still being a human being, you know? <laughs> At least one individual. I was going to be way less neutral in my take. Oh, can I hear it? I, I mean, my take was was literally that he wanted to control the narrative of his, of biblical understanding as much as possible. Yeah. And so he just started buying parts of the Bible. Not even parts of the Bible, just random parts so that he could destroy them on the off chance that they might clash with his interpretation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I... I, I I have no doubt in my mind that 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 was silently the guiding principle behind him beginning to acquire artifacts. Yeah. But that's harder to prove. Yeah, that's true. By the way, uh, this is everything that just came out of my mouth just now is pure editorializing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's fine. This is not a scholarly (laughs) article. I did my fucking research, but this is an editorial. Yeah, yeah, I was... I'm more interested in to hear about like the ramifications and your thoughts than what David Green was actually looking to accomplish. Cause that's, you know, <laughs> you know, you're right. And I am going to get off the topic of David Green. I'm going to, no, read- no, I, by all, by all means, <laughs> what you've gathered is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so let me get a little bit into what happened with uh, the uh, plunder blunder. I've got the Wikipedia article. I've got a quote from the Wikipedia article here. So beginning in 2009, representatives of Hobby Lobby were warned that artifacts they were purchasing was probably looted from Iraq. The purchases had been made for the Museum of the Bible, which the company was sponsoring. In 2018, the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York directed Hobby Lobby to return the artifacts and pay a fine of three million U.S. dollars. Hobby Lobby returned over 5,500 items in May 2018. Among these were nearly 4,000 tablets supposed to be from the lost city of Erisa Greg, which I may have pronounced wrong, excuse me, um, which had been delivered to Hobby Lobby marked as, quote unquote, tile samples. I... (sighs) Tile samples, huh? Yeah, 
They just wrote the word tile samples on a big burlap sack and snuck it out at Iraq like Wiley Coyote. <laughs> I think I did know vaguely about the Bible Museum before researching this. I, I honestly can't tell. It didn't surprise me when I read about it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure his son is running the Bible Museum, and I read a bunch of articles that I don't disagree with that sort of subtly suggested that the entire thing is probably a tax shelter. Oh, that's like, well, I mean, the thing that they point out in the shitty critty, cr- shitty critty, excuse me, uh, <laughs> shitty critties <laughs> on the shitty critties podcast is that like the whole business runs on tax fraud. And like one of the reasons like why Christian fundamentalism is so popular in the business sphere is because you can get, you can cut a lot of your tax revenue off by just donating to evangelical, uh, nonprofits, which you also own. Yeah. 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 And I I think they they got caught at some point when they were like donating items, just sort of inflating the suggested value upon donation, which given that their son was running the whole business, it was just very insular between the greens so that the, you know, you get you get a tax break on donations and they were donating things and saying that they were worth like almost three times as much as they would have been. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, that's also <laughs> cool a, scam. That's also how museums be, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's not unusual. It's just that most museums actually have like a, a principle of greater education at heart. <laughs> Somewhere, yeah. some of them, some of them. Well, we'll get into that a little bit. I do have a couple of notes about yeah. that. But all right, so. um, According to a Business Insider article from November of 2017, David Green spent $500 million to open a museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And yeah, according to like different articles that I read, it was basically like on the same, like in the same area as like the Smithsonian and all of the other big national heritage museums that we have in this country as like an alternative yeah, it's definitely in walking distance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, according to the Business Insider article, the main attractions were, or are, excuse me, they're actually doing just fine, uh, walkthrough experiences meant to simulate things like the 10 deadly plagues and Jesus's birth. It also says that the Green family encouraged interfaith scholarship to provide the highest level of accuracy they could offer. They quote a NYU Jewish studies professor named Lawrence Schifferman in calling the museum a monument to interfaith cooperation. Here's the quote. Exhibits are planned from the Vatican Museum and the Israeli Antiquities Authority. Hmm. Now, do I know what you're thinking? Yeah, I think you do. Yeah, because you have my notes open. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're also thinking, isn't there a third faith, faith that uses these texts in their religion? One that is quite prominent in the part of the world where the first book of the Bible took place. Surely one of the many countries from that part of the world has a museum. Are you thinking that, D? Yeah, they have to have a museum, right? At least one. <laughs> Their own. <laughs> well, I'll get back to that. For now, I right, want to put a pin. Yeah, put a pin in that one. I want to go to the winter issue of the Atlantic in 2016, which is a whole year before the museum opened. Here's the quote: "The sudden appearance in private collections of significant numbers of previously unknown artifacts raises red flags for those who follow the antiquities trade. 
Over the past 25 years, there has been deep concern regarding the flow of illegally acquired antiquities out of the Middle East. The always strong market for biblical or other religious items means that the looting of archaeological sites is a constant threat, which has typically been controlled by powerful central governments. But in the wake of the Gulf War and the series of destabilizing crises that follow in the that followed in the region, excuse me, government controls have become insufficient. We now have what Edward Planch, a United States specialist on this topic, describes as massive looting of cultural properties in the region, and that leads to questionable acquisitions. It sure does. <laughs> For more on the intersection of war profiteering and antiques, check out the Christie's Histories episode of Antiques Freaks. Actually, yeah, Christie's popped up in my research on this again. Oh, yeah? They, yeah, um, some of the, I think at least one piece of antiquity um, that was sold to Hobby Lobby for the Bible Museum oh, had yeah. a f- false attribution of, like, provenance that Christie's had just kind of made up out of fucking fat nowhere to try to hide the fact that it had probably been looted yeah, after yeah, yeah. the Iraq war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so Christie's just keeps on keeping on Christie's. Yeah. <laughs> Christie's, please hire me. Anyways. Uh the <laughs> <laughs> I'm never getting a job there. Um, I was, I was going to say, I was going to, I was going to say I'll lie for you, but I, I wouldn't do that. I care about antiques too much. <laughs> it's okay. They're not hiring me. I'm not anybody special. I'm nobody's daughter. Uh, mm. The museum was hit with smuggling charges before the museum was even opened, and according to the Daily Beast, they were under investigation as far back as 2011. But Business Insider reported their opening weekend like this. The Oklahoma company also had to pay a $3 million fine and return artifacts after federal prosecutors said they got caught up in an antiquities smuggling scheme. Stephen Green, that's the son that you were talking about, said the company had been naive in doing business with the dealers. Items at the center of the fines were never destined for the museum, administrators said. Of the 1,100 items the museum owns, 300 comes from the Green's personal collection. That's very convenient to get in trouble and say, well, I was never going to put these in the museum anyway. (laughs) And also, it was not my fault. It was the person that I was buying it from. They should have done the work. Boy. Ah. <laughs> Amazing. What a cover. I. Yeah, I don't know if, like, you know, like, this is my podcast. I can say whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't believe for a minute that any of what happened was because that they were somehow ignorant. I mean, I don't think that they gave a shit. I think that that if you want to consider that ignorance, that could be it. I, I, yeah, yeah, I do think there is a, a a certain, like, turning their head the other way to certain things. Yeah. Uh, I do agree with that, yes. I don't believe for a second that this was actually that they were bright-eyed, starry antiquities collectors who just didn't know what was happening. I'm just a simple Hobby Lobby <laughs> man from Oklahoma <laughs> with a multi-billion dollar company. I don't What do I know? What do I know about yeah, antiquities? Yeah, I ain't checked the news in 30 years. <laughs> oh, no. I like to just keep my head where it is with my family and my Bible. <laughs> All right. So what that means is that from the very moment of opening, the Greens were under investigation for possible smuggling. And when the Daily Beast reached out 
on July 12th, 2017, the president of the Museum of the Bible was quoted as saying that there was a shipment and it had improper paperwork. Um, amazing. But <laughs> very laissez-faire attitude towards smuggling antiquities. It was just a giant burlap sack with the word tile samples written on it. Carried and we out. said, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. That's wrong. <laughs> God. Uh, smuggling charges before you open has to be some kind of museum record, right? I don't think it is, actually. I'm sorry, D. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I have bad news for you about the history of museums. I know. It's all so dark. Uh, we've picked a dark special interest, you and I, and Ken. Yeah. And all of our friends. <laughs> it's... But it's important to confront. Yes. Otherwise, it just gets swept under the rug and it just gets worse. So what is the definition of improper paperwork? The Daily Beast article defines it as basically a falsified declaration of the contents of a shipment. So directly from the article, there are two ways, uh, two types of customs declarations, informal entry and formal entry. Informal entry is generally for shipments that have a collective monetary value of under 2500 and formal entry is for anything above that. So if a shipper wants to avoid the scrutiny that comes with formal entry, you simply value it at a lower cost. So rather than listing your shipment as uh, National Heritage Antiquities, you would just call them tile samples. <laughs> God. Now we get to the actual points of this podcast. Thank you for joining me on this journey, everyone. Here it comes. D, what am looting? Uh, that is when you, you do a steal while everyone is too busy to stop you from doing a bad steal. Yeah, actually. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yes. <laughs> you probably have a better way of saying that, but... <laughs> I just quoted different like professionals. So Wikipedia defines looting as, quote-unquote... The act of stealing or the taking of goods by force in the midst of a military, political, or other social crisis, such as war, natural disasters, where law and civil enforcement are temporarily ineffective, or rioting. And this is consistent with how the UNESCO World Heritage Foundation defines illicit trafficking of heritage items. Under their page about the 1970 International Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Import, Export, and Transfer Ownership of Cultural Property. And so if the purge was real, this would be the statue they'd try you under for trying to dismantle and sell the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> I'd never thought of that before, but that's an extremely good point about the purge movies. <laughs> I love world building flavor. Uh, yeah, that's why you can see it in every film. It's because UNESCO is protecting it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would be pretty impressed if you could dismantle and sell the Lincoln Memorial in the 24-hour period of The Purge. Okay, for to be fair, what I'm imagining is that somebody comes over and decides that they really want Lincoln's nose so fucking bad that they're going to risk it all. You know? That's true. You know, that's true. I would... I would have body armor and some weaponry to go get Lincoln's dick, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. You don't need the whole thing. You need you need just a piece. Just a piece of the okay. big man. <laughs> you make a compelling point. <laughs> All right. So 
UNESCO is the website to go to if you have any follow-up questions. It's very academic and very legal heavy, but it's the broadest resource available and more of like accessible websites with specific resources tend to be like specific to whichever area or type of antiquity you want to research. Um, so like one that I was looking at earlier is maya-archaeology.org. Um, you know, for things that have to do with the Maya in, uh, Mesoamerica. Yeah. Uh, I also use the Athar project for this particular podcast. This is a nonprofit that covers details about, uh, smuggling out of the Mediterranean, the Near East, North Africa. Athar stands for Antiquities, Trafficking, and Heritage Anthropology Research. And the word Athar is also the Arabic word for antiques. It's a perfect title. Yeah, no, it was it was pretty good. And I like that. They just released their 2019 report on Facebook Marketplace's role in trafficking antiques all over the world. Facebook is great for traffickers because they can make a profile real quick and sell it to somebody real stupid. Yep, and the uh, one thing we, I, that we all know about Facebook is that their moderation is just so accurate and uh, human-involving. Oh, definitely, definitely. That was sarcasm in case you guys didn't catch I there definitely the got yeah. it. <laughs> Box seats got it. Yeah, Facebook takes, like, what, I think three days to respond to any request for a human being to review something, and at that point, a trafficker is gone. Yeah, the traffic is done. But also, like, even if it does get to a mod before it gets sold, this stuff is really difficult to tell whether or not it's legitimate or not. Like, you do need to review the paperwork to find that out. So, like... Yeah, that's true. You you have to have experience in, in verifying that. I mean, Mar- Facebook shouldn't be selling any of this stuff at all, specifically because you can't use it as, like, a qualifying marketplace for antique antiquity specifically. Um Classical antiquities. Antiques, eh, fuck it, risk it. I'd risk it for like a 1920s table or whatever. Yeah, anything, you know, stuff that where it's pretty easy to go on the internet and just kind of verify real quick if they're horseshitting you. Yeah. No big deal. Uh, Athar also reports that these marketplace groups are a mix of buyers, middlemen, and extremist groups in Iraq and Syria, including groups like Hayat Tahir al-Sham, HTS, Huras al-Din, the Zinki Brigade, and other non-Syrian-based Al-Qaeda or Islamic State in Iraq and Syria affiliates. And that is the full acronym for ISIS, in case anyone was wondering. That's probably the first time a lot of people have heard that full acronym. Yeah, it was the first time I saw it was in their report. So there you go. Oh, wow. And I bring up these groups not because they are actually directly related to the Hobby Lobby uh, scandal, because they're not, not directly, but to remind people of what the real human costs of these events are. On, in August of 2015, Syria's director of antiques, Khaled al-Assad, was beheaded by Daesh for refusing to reveal the location of hidden antiquities from Syria's Palmyra archaeology site. According to reports, they were convinced that there was buried gold somewhere and they wanted to sell it. They held him for a month. Palmyra is largely considered one of the greatest archaeological sites in the Middle East. Yep, and yeah, as you said, that is the human cost at the very base of antiquities and antiques tra- trafficking from uh, crisis areas. Yeah. That's just the name of one person who we know, somebody who was high up enough to 
be directly connected to this, but I genuinely, I mean, like, I genuinely don't know how many people tried to protect these sites from being destroyed who had smaller positions or who just cared. Yeah, who who got hurt or killed who is just not in the public eye enough for us to know that it happened. Yeah, and there are countless destroyed historical sites in the Near East right now. Um, but the, this is not directly related to the Greens. Um, I keep saying this because like people have pointed out that it's kind of orientalizing to act like the Greens hired like hitmen or whatever to go out into the desert for antiquities. That's not what happened. Yeah, no, that's that's yeah. I, I get what you're saying. This is just sort of like the the cultural milieu of what enabled the Greens to do what they did, which had nothing to do with these groups. Yes, exactly. They bought their shit through Christie's. Yeah, yeah, like like we brought up before, Christie's was also trafficking these goods. Yeah. And I'm, again, not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt to think that they were ignorant to all of this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, to, to make this a lot more clear, like, we do now know how many items in their collection were looted. It's basically all of them. But they still own their collection of Middle Eastern and North African artifacts. The only thing that was seized was the stuff that was actually in the museum. And... Yeah, we know they're definitely deluded. They're in a private collection. There's no proper paperwork to reconnect them to their site of origins, and they might as well be gone, especially in the fam- in the hands of a family like the Greens. Like, there were so many articles that I read about them, like, just hiring anybody who knew a couple of words in Sumerian to check the tablets and to encourage them to throw away things that they thought were unessential. Yeah, there are... Very few, and it's extremely hard to enforce laws about personal ownership in the U.S., regardless of where these things came from. Yeah. God knows the horrible rigmarole surrounding ivory law is another great example of that. And I'm going to actually, like, muddy the waters a little bit. I know a couple of people who, I mean, uh, I had a friend who inherited a bunch of arsenic birds from a museum. Arsenic. Oh. Yeah, arsenic was used as a preservative for taxidermy for hundreds of years, I think. Don't quote me on exactly how long it was used, but it's incredibly toxic and it's actually not considered safe to have in a collection anymore because it could harm people who are preserving the artifacts and the other artifacts as well. So, he he took them basically for his own private collection and he brought a girl home one time and he showed her his beautiful display of arsenic birds and she called fish and wildlife and they destroyed them yep it's i i feel like people are really surprised sometimes at the the sort of wild west state of things in regards to like any law governing antiquities and antiques yeah i don't think that they think about exactly where the overlap is between private and personal uh, public and personal until they have to until fish and game comes yeah. <laughs> or unesco <laughs> or unesco comes and takes all of your cuneiform tablets yeah. i mean something else that really like just fucked me up about the museum of the bible that they have is that they have a fake view of the sea of galilee which still exists the money they spent to- <laughs> it's real the sea of galilee is a real thing it's fine 
I mean, it's not fine. It's it's actually drying up. It's actually like a it's actually going to disappear if global warming happens anymore. But they could have spent the money that they used to build diorama to conserve the real body of water that appears in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. You could have done like a adopt the Sea of Galilee and <laughs> and to have money go towards a some kind of I'm not really good at environmental stuff. People know more about it than me. But like this stuff, I guarantee if you look it up, there's groups out there working to preserve it. Oh, definitely. Definitely there is. I'm sure there's more than one, too. Ah, I know. Ah, it's just like... I guess fucking look at, the, look at this fake Sea of Galilee, a real thing. <laughs> Fuck off. As I mentioned going to the zoo and all the... And they have like a plush ant and it's like, that's what a lion would look like. <laughs> you could get one. <laughs> you could look at it. I know it's I mean yeah but the, this is like the reason why the Museum of the Bible is such an, a great example of colonialism is because you don't actually want to see the real Sea of Galilee you want to see how you imagined it as it was written down in a Bible however many thousands of years ago yeah you want to see white Jesus on the banks of it right, right dipping his toes in collecting a couple seashells skipping some flat rocks you know how he did Exactly. You don't want you don't want to confront the realities of the Sea of Galilee. No. Uh, yeah, so I mean this is the problem. Again, going back to like personal versus private, what is a museum collection personal or is it private? Like repatriating stolen items is really difficult. And this is why boards of directors will say that they just can't do it is because they've chosen to interpret the demand as unreasonable. It means that they have to make a new budget for it and that they might their collection might lose its value. It's difficult. It's costly. I mean, like going back to what you said earlier about so many museums wanting on some level somewhere in the multi chambered husk of their hearts uh, want to educate, you know. Yeah, in that hideous churning gut, there's sometimes fragments of purity. Yes, the lich remembers a softer time in its dis- in its distant past. <laughs> God, what a beautiful God! It's like you're a writer or something. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> That's a beautiful sentiment. I loved that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, keep things and then say it's for other people. But it's also difficult. It's genuinely, genuinely difficult. When the stuff it enters into a private collection, it might as well get washed. It doesn't exist. I put in my notes this story about uh, something that my boss used to tell me. Mike used to say this all the time about this couple who went to a museum because they'd inherited a mummified human hand from the husband's grandfather. He went to Egypt in the 1920s and he bought it off of a man. Oh, dear God. With a carpet. Yep. Just bought it right off the street. And the husband wanted to return it. He wanted to do the right thing. So he went to the museum. He found his way to the director of, I'm guessing it was uh, Egyptian antiques. And he gave him the hand. And the guy opened a drawer in his desk full of other mummified hands. And he dropped it in. That was that. It's done. Yep. Uh, That is the reality of it and that was a human person yep and he can never be returned to his tomb 
Whereas other body parts, God knows they're probably in different museums. Yeah, and it's yeah, and it's so difficult to do DNA testing on something that is that desiccated as well. A lot of the protein yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Oh, uh, what a grim story. <laughs> Shit. I'm full of grim stories about antiquity specifically, which is also why you called me onto this podcast. It It is exact. I'm very glad of it. <laughs> I mean, speaking of, like, grim antiques, I'm sure people are wondering, like, oh, man, I joined this podcast to listen to talk about carnival glass. I didn't know that I was going to have to be afraid of antiques. Uh, you should always be a little bit afraid of it. I mean, yeah. like, you, you know, I feel very strongly about an ethical and mindful approach to uh, keeping antiques and curating them. Yes. So. Yeah. Glad to talk to you about that. Yep. Um, yeah, and in general, like, when I tell people what to look for, I mean, like, 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 what you should do is you should open Netflix and you should uh, start Pirates of the Caribbean up. And when they get to the Cave of Treasure, I want you to hit pause on the Cave of Treasure and I want you to scan it. And anything that you see in an antique shop that could theoretically go in a pirate's Cave of Treasure might be looted. Yikes. Bones, jewels, endangered animal parts, ivory, luxury items that you could move for a really high sum. Gotta have good provenance on that. You cannot skim. You absolutely cannot. It is extremely dangerous to skim those. Yeah, do not skim. What you could do, here's the thing. Here's my suggestions whenever people are like, but I really wanted, I don't know, some Mexican jade. You know what Mexican jade is, D? Uh, no, actually, I don't. It's actually nephrite. Um, oh. It's nephrite. And it is a beautiful green stone that was treasured uh, in pre-Columbia Mesoamerica in many different cultures. I know that we... I, a lot of people talk about how like gold was considered a lesser substance because it's soft can't really do much with it. There wasn't a hell of a lot of it in Mesoamerica. So they basically just like made it for uh, grave goods and sacrificial items. But what they did use as a highly prized, precious stone is nephrite. And if you see that, it's bad. Unless, unless you meet somebody who is carving it right now. If you want some cool pirate booty looking treasure just get it from people who are making it right now this is where like getting quote-unquote fakes is fine oh yeah and i i'm willing to bet that there are craftspeople currently working with nephrite in various areas of central america yep tons it's very much considered like part of their heritage they that's a that's a good way to go get yeah. it pay them for pay it. them for it get some get something Get something from somebody with modern tools. Fuck, get something better. Damn, shit. It's probably going to be cheaper in the long run, too. Yeah, ultimately. You don't have to pay UNESCO. <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah, I actually do have one more story about, like, specifically things that you can buy from communities without looting from them. Shrunken heads. I'm sorry? Yes. Shrunken heads. Okay. Okay, tell me more. Well, I mean, they were very, very popular for people who wanted to collect weird things in the 19th century specifically. And what uh, the Javaro tribe 
I'm going to name specifically discovered is that you could make a shrunken head out of anything, really. And so that's what they do. No shit. Yeah, they do it today, right now. I've actually met people who have come into my store and been like, because I used to sell uh, shrunken heads made out of like monkey, goat, whatever. And they come in and they're like, oh, my uncle makes these. Still make them today. They make them for tourists. Do that. That's that's all right. Yeah, that's. And you know what? That's actually a cooler story. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Then I bought someone's corpse. <laughs> I know I don't know who got this corpse or how. Nope, there's no story behind this. It's just mine now. Or you can have a good story. You can have a cool, fun story. Are there examples of antiques that may have been looted that are sort of like least concern? Huh. Uh, Coins, honestly. Stuff that... Coins, all right. Yeah. (laughs) Coins. So something in that like general, because because that's the the thing, right? Where popular thing with museums is that nine times out of ten they don't want what you're trying to give them, right? Because it's not important, and they've got th- thousands. Yeah, exactly. Something that could have been distributed to literally anyone. Something that isn't one of a kind. Something that isn't. How do I put this? I mean, because I guess you could theoretically say that about cuneiform tablets, but those carry very specific details about a historical moment that you can't replicate. Whereas a coin, definitely replicated, definitely out there. Don't want to see it. <laughs> don't don't much care for nope. it, in fact. No, 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 no. Coins, uh, jewels that have been given certain cuts, unless they are really distinctive and special, but that can depend a lot. Um, this, again, does really depend on the region that you are pulling it out of, very specifically the region. I mean, like, something that I did see in my research is that, like, I mean, you know, Roman Empire was huge, so there are Roman coins in Iraq and Syria, but those are still considered looted. It's just that they might still be considered of lesser concern. However, something that is part of the Roman Empire, but specific to Iraq and Syria, so like Roman era Iraq or Syria, could be more important. Uh, All right. I also have sort of a doozer of a question for you. Oh, boy. Um, And this one I actually ran into a couple of times while touring a museum of archaeology in Philadelphia, which is the extremely strange assertion that Artifacts like that are better off looted than in their original countries due to some sort of a people those countries might be experiencing. Classically, this refers to Iraq. I mean, that's fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, like, currently, like, honestly, I'm going into a historical, like, example to prove why that's fucked up, but, like, uh... Italy and Greece were considered to be extremely conflict-heavy areas for a huge chunk of the mod- of modern history, which is why the British Museum has so much of their stuff, and which is why Italy and Greece has been petitioning them repeatedly to get it back. It's only been in the past couple of years that the British Museum has begun to, I don't remember what the exact word is, but basically begin the process of returning the actual property rights to different countries of origin. They're doing this specifically in Nigeria, I believe. Don't quote me on that because I don't have the notes up in front of me. Um, But like in 
the instance that a region is conflict heavy and these items might require moving, that doesn't mean that another country deserves to own them. That's very well said. I am going to go see a surrealist exhibit at the Met in October. However, the Tate Modern is not giving the Met any of their surrealist art. They are letting them look at it. Very important distinction. Yes. The Tate Modern will not give the Met any of their surrealist art. Yeah, because I hear that that one gets bandied around a lot, and I think a lot of people feel very self-satisfied in that being a justified reason for museums to hold on to looted artifacts or even for them to enter, like, trade individual trade auctions and such uh but i keep thinking back to what how you were talking about the hobby lobby greens sort of ordering the destruction of things that didn't interest them and asking myself now is that actually caretaking these artifacts any better than their home countries could have no but i mean i suppose a museum would argue that it's better for the museum to purchase it than the greens but that's just too that's just a slap fight between two rich white people yeah, I mean that's that's a rock in a shit place. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, I don't think legally the Greens should be allowed to own anything. Personally, <laughs> yeah, I think they should be released into pastures like animals. But like, I agree. <laughs> they can live a simpler life yeah. there, the way the Bible told them to. Exactly. Yeah, without money, like the way Jesus kept talking about. Yeah. So, do you think that the do you think that the world is at its extremely sluggish pace, moving towards the idea that artifacts can be repatriated yes and should be yes i think it is genuinely i do i mean it is sluggish but the fact that this conversation has actually like concluded with like several of the most well-known egyptian pharaohs being returned to egypt is amazing did you watch the golden parade by any chance I did. Yeah. I did. It was uh, very moving, actually. Yeah, it was. It was gorgeous. It was genuinely beautiful. And, I mean, honestly, I would not mind watching something like that again in other parts of the world. Yeah. And it doesn't... I I, I was... I'm mostly looking for you to confirm the idea I'm having here, because you know more, way more about this than I do. Like you had mentioned before, these things being repatriated doesn't mean that we never get to see them again. No. No. It just means that we focus on museums having more interaction with each other and having, like, rotating exhibits. Yeah. Yeah, basically it just means that one museum is going to have to, like, talk to the curators in another museum and, like, work out some kind of negotiation. Like, I don't know, maybe you could send something over there and they can have an exhibit that's been in your archives for God knows how fucking long. And then you can get something from theirs. I mean, like, for the listeners at home and for you as well, Dee, do you remember when we got to see that Frankenstein exhibit at the Morgan Library? Yes, that was fantastic. That was amazing. I never thought that I was going to get the chance to see half of those paintings in real life, and I did. But they don't own any of those museums. They don't own, like, the original Nightmare painting or the Three Witches of Hamlet. Like, those paintings that you see in art books, they don't own those. Yeah, that was a wonderful experience and brought to you by Traveling Exhibit. Yeah. They do own a couple of pieces of Mary Shelley's like original estate, but the point is that it was fleshed out by like borrowing. Uh, I did also, I have one more question for you. How do you feel about the fact that literally all of the Museum of the Bible's Dead Sea Scrolls were counterfeits? 
Uh, I think that there's actually been a question for a really long time about whether the sea scro- Dead Sea Scrolls are legitimate or not. Um, this is actually a theological debate, so it's not quite my area of expertise. I do remember having like a very brief discussion about it in a class at one point, but also the teacher kept shouting while we were talking about it, that's not what the point of this class is. Uh, we are talking about earlier religions. Please stop. Um <laughs> This is the same class that I took with the ancient aliens, guys. No shit, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Ancient alien guy. He doesn't know that stones are older than people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I just felt a brief rush of them getting their just desserts at getting scammed by art fraudsters. Yeah, no, definitely. But it's also like... Ah. Uh, okay, wait, how do I put this? So basically, yes, definitely. But it also brings up a larger question of like, how much very specifically wealthy white American Christians need to believe that there are like physical remnants from their stories that they can hold. And you can't really have that. Not actually, not with as much dedication to the text of like the King James Bible as you might want. Fair point. Man. That was some damn good loot. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a weird fucking story. <laughs> the Greens are nightmare people. Um they're ghouls. Let me right now if you are living in an area where Hobby Lobby is either the only or the most accessible craft and hobby store consider dick blick and jerry's artorama online both of them have excellent sales coupons and reasonable shipping yeah and it is much less illegal than checking to see if hobby lobby puts security tags on or if it's just sticker tags yep yep it's easier it's fun and uh, and frankly, all of the, both those websites that I've mentioned have a much better uh, range of options than Hobby Lobby does. Just from my brief uh, going through their online store, it looks like shit. <laughs> Fuck. There, there are ways around getting to Hobby Lobby. Please don't support these absolute monsters. They're yeah. freaks. Yes. And they don't need your money. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. And check out the Shitty Christians podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that they're very fair to honest, earnest Christians. They are. Uh, that is why it's called shitty Christians and not Christians are shitty. They identify as Christians themselves. Yeah, uh, which you know, I I don't I don't take much of a shine to the general anti-theists myself. I believe that the range of human belief is beautiful, so it's refreshing when people have good takes like that. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> well said, D. Thank you for lending us your your uh, expertise in this to uh, just sort of understand how deep this horrible little pool goes. Yeah. No, I had a great time. I mean, it was awful, but I'm a ghoul. Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Like we, we didn't get into this to have a great good time all the time. <laughs> no, but also I am a horrible little ghoul creature who plans on digging my way through like pits of human remains myself with my own two bare hands. So like, you know, it was fine. Nice, nice. And and I cannot wait for you to get there, personally. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so fucking tired. I just want to rest. <laughs> Possibly amongst my ancestors. <laughs> oh, God. I'm 
going back to the Mediterranean and I'm laying my head down into the crypts and I'm never returning. Oh no. No, please return. I, I, I'm, after we're done recording, I'm going to ask you to come on for another episode. Yes, please. I want to come back. <laughs> this is always so much fun. Wait, when do you do sources? Should I do it now? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I'm just about to say, tell me where your sources come from. Well, first off, Wikipedia. Always helpful. Consider donating. Thank you. Uh, Glassdoor.com, County17.com, HobbyLobby.com, specifically their About Us and Our Story sections. Shitty Christians, but specifically episode 23, which is called Hobby Lobby, Sex, Lies, and Masking Tape. I think you can actually find it if you just like put Hobby Lobby into a podcaster chaser. Yeah. The Athar Project's 2019 report of Facebook Marketplace's Black Market and Antiquities, available on atharproject.org slash report 2019. Can Hobby Lobby Buy the Bible? by Joel Baden and Candida Moss for the Atlantic's January and February issue of 2016. Exclusive! Feds investigate Hobby Lobby Boss for illicit artifacts by Candida Moss and Joel Baden for the Daily Beast, July 12, 2017. Dispelling the Myths Around the Hobby Lobby Antiquities Case by Michael Press for Hyperallergic.com on July 14, 2017. Museum of the Bible Opens in Washington by Rachel Zoll for Business Insider on November 16, 2017. Visiting the Museum of the Bible Opened by the Hobby Lobby President, written by Kate Taylor for Business Insider, October 23, 2018. Hobby Lobby reportedly leaving store open after Message from God... Bethany Deeren for Business Insider, <laughs> March 22nd, 2020. And finally, I wasn't able, I didn't want to put this into this into the actual episode, but I wanted to give a special shout out to Alexandra Petri for publishing the story of Hobby Lobby looting heritage sites in the style of the Epic of Gilgamesh as an opinion piece on the Washington Post, which went live on July 29th of 2021. That was a lot. We salute. So I suppose I'll post this in the Facebook group and anywhere else anyone would like to add. I, I kept all of the links. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, yeah. You know, more people can learn on their own. Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to plug? Any projects you want to talk about? Hmm. Well, if you liked my world building about the Purge, I actually have a fantasy book out. And you can buy it now. It's called Lord of Thundertown and it's available on Nine Star Press. If you don't want to buy it online, I understand you can buy it wherever books are sold. You can also check my website, ofcary.com, for some of my short fiction, which is free. And a chapter of my upcoming book, which I'm calling Back Mask. Which is fantastic. I've been reading. Ah! I've also read Lord of Thundertown, and it is absolutely glorious. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, if you've ever found yourself liking my references to media, and you generally find yourself of a mind with me, I guarantee you're going to love it. Thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> praise. We, we have this problem with authors a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you just kind of sit there being like, I sure did write a book, didn't I? You wrote a book. Oh, my God. Check out that book. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you liked listening to the podcast today, consider scrolling on down to wherever you're listening to this and leaving us a review. Any review helps and gets our voices into a variety of ears. Huge shout out to our patrons for helping us keep the lights on and filling our hearts with love. And thank you for listening. Especially you. That's right. You. <laughs> I stole his thunder. 
Ken, you can, you took it. Yeah, Ken, you're not allowed back. I've taken your place. <laughs> All right, and and can you give us a big hearty goodbye? Goodbye. Uh, thank you.